about your sermon outline has the cosmic conflict on it. Because we've had a change in schedule uh, over the last month or so, today we're going to finish Revelation chapter 11, do all of Revelation 12, and all of Revelation 13. So you have to listen really, really fast. The, uh, but because there's so much, I'm going to read it sort of as we go through it. And uh, so let's start by going to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. As we look at this vision of conflict in the world and the violence and deception that will inflict suffering on all the saints, even on us, overwhelm us as you overwhelmed John. Remind us of what this is all about, Lord. Help us to see that Jesus is the conquering king who will reign forever and ever. Do this for each of us this morning. In the majestic name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're entering into uh, uh, the passage that many of you have been waiting for, getting into the really different stuff today. Passage filled with all sorts of images and symbols, and it's hard to sort them out. Now, I remember growing up in the 60s and 70s. Yes, I am that old. And there were constant political cartoons, uh, even more so than today. Images in the editorial section of the papers of Uncle Sam wrestling with a big brown bear. Now, if you went outside and looked for this scene of Uncle Sam actually wrestling with a bear, you, uh, you'd never find it. But it was happening. And for those who aren't familiar with these images, Uncle Sam stood for the United States of America, and the big brown bear was the Soviet Union. Later on in the 80s and the 90s, we saw similar images of an eagle being attacked by a dragon. And if you went outside, you'd be hard-pressed uh, to find a dragon at all, let alone one attacking an eagle. However, if you followed the political climate of those days, you knew those images were referring to the United States and to China, and what many thought would be the inevitable economic and military conflict. Now, how did I know that the eagle and Uncle Sam represented the U.S. and the bear represented the Soviet Union and the dragon was a symbol for China? Because I, like everyone else in those days, was steeped in the rhetoric of the Cold War. Everyone knew what those images symbolized. Today, not so much. It's more likely today, if you read about international tension uh, between the great powers, it's much more common for the papers and news magazines to tell you what those symbols mean. They'll write about the American eagle or the Chinese dragon and the Russian bear. They still use the images, but now they're explained in their titles. Now, the Apostle John is going to use similar images in these chapters that we're going to quickly look at today. And his readers and listeners in the seven churches 
of Revelation, the seven churches of Asia Minor, would have understood what John was getting at right away because they were steeped in the language and symbolism and rhetoric of the Old Testament. But today, since much of the world, even and perhaps especially the Christian world, has become essentially Old Testament illiterate, these images are confusing and hard to understand. And we don't get it. And it all seems sort of overwhelming to us. Furthermore, without understanding this section of Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, all the way through chapter 14, verse 5, we don't get the book at all. Because Revelation uh, eleven fifteen through 14, 5, and in particularly Revelation chapter 12, is the theological center of the book. Everything up to now has led up to this point. And everything after this is attempting to explain these events. For today we see that the seventh trumpet is sounded. And after great rejoicing, all hell breaks loose, literally. And so you'll need to hang on because it's quite a ride. Today we're back again in Revelation in the deep waters of chapters 11, 12, and 13. And here we see three, <coughs> excuse me, three conquering metaphors. And the first one is power over rage. Power over rage. Like the peeling of an onion, the unfolding of John's visions leads us layer by layer deeper into the mystery of God, which is to be completed when the seventh trumpet sounds. That was according to Revelation chapter 10, said, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel... The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And in the order of how this vision unfolds, John hears now at chapter 11, verse 15, the final trumpet call, which sets in motion the climactic scenes of the end times, the cosmic conflict that will be played out in chapters 12 through chapter 19. And it'll start with a holy war, of chapters 12 and 13, which will be decisively won by the Lamb in chapter 14. And then we're taken back into a series of sevens with the seven bulls in chapters 15 and 16. Again, a reminder of what these things look like from the perspective of heaven. And then we're again confronted with a vision of the enemy through a depiction of deception and seduction by Babylon the harlot in chapter 17 through the first half, of, uh, beginning of chapter 19. And finally, we get a description of the last battle in chapters 19 and 20, culminating in Christ's ultimate victory over all his enemies. And finally, we see the new Jerusalem at the end of the book. All of that is set into motion with the sound of the seventh trumpet, which unleashed the third woe upon the world. Remember they said the last three trumpets, there would be three woes. We've already had the fifth and the sixth trumpet. So now we get the seventh trumpet, the third woe, and yet John doesn't immediately see the impact of the third woe. 
Instead, unexpectedly, he hears this chorus of celebration and thanksgiving in heaven, starting at verse 15, chapter 11. And you want to get your uh, uh, Bibles out to read along because it's just too much text to put in the outline. So today you've got to use your Bibles. If you don't know where Revelation is, go to the end. Chapter 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And so we have that scene, you have that great line that we know from Handel's Messiah, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then we have the elders that give thanks to God, said the Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. It doesn't say, and who is to come, which is what we're used to hearing, because he's come. He's there. He's present. And then he brings his great power. The nations raged, but his power, his wrath came and put an end to the rage of the nations. The nations raged, that's a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2. And this is immediately followed up with a scene that points to an even deeper disclosure of the mystery of God. God's sanctuary in heaven opened, bringing the ark of his covenant into view. Verse 19. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. There are several times in Revelation where we get some phrase along the lines of, I saw heaven opened. And always it's leading us to uh, the meaning of what's coming. When John sees heaven opened, what is coming is we're going to see the next event from the perspective of heaven. And remember, John's visions are not in the order of things happening, just in the order that he receives the visions. So time-wise, it all jumps back and forth. And now John sees within heaven a sanctuary, previously veiled chamber, implicitly identified as the most holy place, the holy of holies, by the presence of the ark. And this deeper level of insight brings us to the core of the conflict, God versus Satan. And the opening of heaven says we're going to see this conflict from God's perspective. And it's signaled by the appearance of two signs in heaven. Going to chapter 12. And this conquering metaphor of the child over the dragon. The child over the dragon. Only three times in John's visions 
uh, are they labeled, our images labeled as signs. And two of them appear right here in verses 1 and 3. Look at Revelation 12, the first six verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven. What's a sign? We have a baptism. We say it's a physical sign of a spiritual reality. It points to another reality. So he says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. A woman clothed with the sun appears as the first great sign, and soon afterwards another sign, a great red dragon, comes into view. And the conflict between the woman and the dragon dominates the drama of Revelation 12, which begins in verse 4 with the dragon waiting to consume the son to whom the woman is giving birth. It's a horrible image. Then the chapter closes with the dragon's frustrated attempts to destroy the woman, her son, and the rest of her children. And here we have two complementary visions providing symbolic commentary on the same battle. Twice we'll see the dragon defeated in battle. Twice we'll see his frustration in trying to destroy the woman. And it's clear in this vision that the woman is the mother of the Messiah. For it says in verse 5 that she's going to, verse 4, she has a male child. And in verse 5, that he is the one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now, Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm. And in a couple of weeks when Rich pre preaches on uh, Solus Christus, Psalm 2 will be our responsive reading. It is the most uh, quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. The, uh, Psalm 2 is quoted more in the New Testament than any other text in the Old Testament. And Psalm 2 recounts God's anointing, God's decree, which anoints the Messiah as the universal king. And that's how it's quoted here. Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9 says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten of you. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. However, Psalm 2 opens with the kings of this world conspiring against the Lord and against his Christ. The first two verses of Psalm 2 say, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. 
So that's the scene that we have. There's a decree that the Messiah is the anointed of God. He will rule the nations. But it begins, the nations are conspiring against him. They're plotting against the Lord. <coughs> and they're raging against the Lord. And now that's been reversed. We saw in uh, verse 15, chapter 11, that's what's being celebrated by that heavenly chorus. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of the, our Lord and of his Christ. And the 24 elders uh, said, you've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the nations rage against the Lord God Almighty in Psalm 2, but now he has taken power and he'll reign forever and ever. Which brings us back to these two signs of the woman and the dragon. Now the woman symbolizes several things all at once. And I'm not going to get into all the details because we'll be here till 3 o'clock. So, and I'll have you out by 2, easy. She symbolizes Israel. Because the description of her being clothed with the sun and having the moon and the stars, that comes directly from Genesis 37 and Isaiah 54, both of which symbolize uh, the Israel as the people of God. And she symbolizes the church as the redeemed people of God, although the church is also referred to as the rest of her offspring. Additionally, she symbolizes the mother of the promised seed who would slay the serpent. This conflict is far older than one might think. It began in the garden when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and God pronounced his curse on the serpent. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, means conflict, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Not a particular woman, not uh, any woman, not all woman, but the woman. The same woman that's being referenced here in Revelation. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is mortal combat declared by God against the dragon. And we know if we jump ahead to verse 9, the dragon is identified there. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So here's Satan as the great red dragon is waiting to devour the son of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, at his birth. And that is the way of Satan. We know that. Apostle Peter tells us that in 1 Peter 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The dragon is identified as being highly intelligent, has seven heads, very powerful. He has ten horns, <clears throat> and he has great authority, seven diadems. All of which are counterfeit imitations of the true God. But it seems as though the strength and intelligence and ferocity of the dragon make him an overpowering adversary to the woman and her newborn son. And yet the dragon's plot is foiled 
with split-second speed. Look at verse 5, chapter 12. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. This is the high point of the whole book of Revelation, verse 5. If you picture Revelation as a mountain, everything's leading up to chapter 12, verse 5, and everything afterwards is trying to explain it. And that statement, her child was caught up to God and to his throne, summarizes the life, suffering, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Neither the dragon's deadly strategy or his exercise of raw power is enough to destroy the seed of the woman, the lion lamb who claimed the victory and gained the victory by being slain. And since his plot against the son is thwarted, the dragon turns in rage on the Messiah's mother, but God enables her to escape to a place of safety for 1,260 days. Same time period repeatedly used in Revelation to describe the whole time between the first and second comings of Christ. We read about uh, uh, 1,260 days, three and a half years, 42 months, times, times, and half a time, all referring to the same period of time between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. And then there's a complementary vision that we get showing the same conflict from a different perspective. Starts in verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him uh, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Six times we get in this whole uh, section, we get that he was thrown down. Whenever you see something repeated over and over again, that's something being emphasized. He was thrown down. Remember when Jesus came uh, to Jerusalem and they talked to him, and uh, he sent out when he sent out the seventy-two disciples. He sent out. I'm ad libbing here. Sent out the seventy-two disciples. And they came back and said, hey, everybody obeys us. We use your name. They do that. And he said, and you're right. And I looked and I saw lightning and I saw the serpent being thrown down, the devil being thrown down from heaven. This is a, a big image in the Bible. But this passage also evokes two Old Testament scenes. The first one comes to us from Daniel chapter 10. Remember, the key to understanding Revelation is knowing the Old Testament. And in Daniel 10, we meet Michael, and he's a great prince in the unseen spiritual realm who assists God's angelic messengers. <coughs> the messengers were trying to get to Daniel to give him a vision, and they were delayed. But then Michael showed up and basically 
fought his way through all the people opposing them so that the messengers could get to Daniel. Michael's a good name. That's one you, you want to consider. Okay? Jezebel gets named too. That's not a good name. Don't want to use that one. But anyway, Michael's, uh, he assists these angelic messengers in Daniel 10, and then he stands guard over God's people. And his power and his holiness make him a fitting captive, uh, captain uh, for the hosts of God's loyal angels as they join in battle against the dragon and his angels. And this conflict seems to be brief, but often big things, are, as we saw already, are summarized in one sentence. And that happens here. The dragon and his forces are thrown down to earth by Michael and his angels. And then the great voice in heaven speaks, and as it makes clear, this battle symbolizes the truth that Satan has been disbarred from his status as the prosecutor in the court of divine justice. Verse 10. Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is the one that when you appeared in God's heavenly courtroom said, look at her, look at her sins. She's clothed with filth because of her lies and gossip and violence and deception. That's another Old Testament scene. We got it. We saw it last week from the book of Zechariah, chapter 3. God's tribunal in heaven there in Zechariah 3. We saw those same things. The accuser showed up and he hurled charges against Joshua, the high priest. And he, they were apparently justified because Joshua appears as one who was defiled, wearing filthy garments, exposing all of his guilt. And yet, if you remember, it said that the Lord rebuked Satan and had his angels uh, come, and he commanded that Joshua's stained clothes be replaced by pure vestments. For the cleansing of Joshua is the preview of the deep cleansing to come when God's servant, the branch, arrives. We saw that last week. And so when we get to that heavenly courtroom, Satan didn't have to lie. He just has to point out your sin. And it's true. You really did that stuff. But if you've been covered by the blood of the lamb, if your name is in the lamb's book of life, he comes, takes those filthy garments off and replaces them with righteous garments, with pure vestments, and you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the accuser's banishment from heaven shows that Jesus, the branch, has now arrived. He is the woman's son. And no longer can Satan make accusations against those for whom the lamb has shed his blood. Look at verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And therefore the war in heaven that John sees in symbolic visions is fought on earth, where Jesus suffered and died on a cross outside Jerusalem and then rose again from the dead 
the very events that we celebrate this week between Palm Sunday and Easter. And the dragon's banishment from heaven to earth marks the coming of God's kingdom and the authority of his Christ. And at the seventh and last trumpet, the heavenly voices celebrate the final coming of God's kingdom when all opposition to the reign of Christ is stricken from the earth. But that leads us to the next section, which is the sequel to the first section of chapter 12, because it reveals the devil deprived of his authority to indict believers, well aware that his days are numbered. It says he knows his time is short, vents his frustration by wreaking havoc on earth. Beginning at verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river the dragon had poured from his mouth. The devil unleashes his rage upon God's people through deceit and violence. And he tries to get the woman, but she escapes through God's provision, flying away on eagle's wings using the imagery of God redeeming his people from the Exodus. Exodus 19, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And then the devil sends a flood after the woman, but he is thwarted by creation itself when the earth swallows the river that's been sent after the woman. In biblical imagery, what proceeds from the mouth symbolizes words and their power, and always reflects what's in the heart. And here, the river flowing from the mouth of the devil symbolizes the deceit and the violence that he will unleash upon the world. And it's a mere caricature of Christ, from whose mouth John sees a sharp sword. At the very beginning of Revelation chapter 1, in his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And his sovereign pronouncement of judgment on false teachers will bring destruction unless they repent. This same Son of God, armed with the same sword proceeding from his mouth, is the faithful and true captain of heaven's cavalry, the living word of God, of whom we read near the end of the book, Revelation 19, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, Psalm 2, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And because of the sovereign protection of the Creator and the creation, his creation, the woman finds her refuge in a place prepared by God, making good his promise to her, as the Israel of God, as the people of God, in Isaiah 43, where it says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
and through the rivers. They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So we get to the end of chapter 12. And now having been twice defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of his people, the dragon turns away and attacks the saints. And this brings us to the last part of the cosmic conflict, which is the saints over the beast. The saints over the beast. You got dragon, you got beast. We got all the images. The last verse of chapter 12 says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So the dragon now makes war on the saints, defined here as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he does this by first unleashing a beast from the sea. Starting at chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So now this monster emerges from the sea, which represents the sea, represents chaos and evil. And this beast is the one the dragon uses to wage war on the saints. And this beast is taken from Daniel's vision of the four beasts in Daniel 7, except now they're all rolled into one. And the beast is allowed to attack the saints for 42 months. Again, the same time period between the first and second comings of Christ. And since the dragon, who's now identified as Satan, will wage war through violence and deception, it seems that the beast symbolizes the persecution of the saints by the great powers of the earth. During this time period, the church will be increasingly persecuted, even as we see in our own time, and yet protected by the Spirit. The church will be witnessing invincibly and growing in numbers and strength, just as we see uh, in our day today, and yet at the same time, it will be trampled underfoot by unbelieving nations. And as we see here, the church will appear to be conquered 
and killed. And yet, like her Savior, she will emerge victorious and shall never be destroyed. Now, many people think this beast is the Antichrist because it imitates the lamb in so many ways. One of its heads has a fatal wound, but now it's healed, just as the lamb was slain, now standing. And people were amazed at this counterfeit image. Bowing down in worship to the dragon and the beast. If the dragon is a counterfeit image of God, then the beast is a counterfeit image of Jesus. But notice that those who worship these false gods are those whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. whole lot I could say about election there, but there isn't time. Now the word antichrist isn't used in the book of Revelation. It comes to us from the letter, uh, letters to the Thessalonians, which we went through last year. And if you remember that, we said the Antichrist is not a person as much as a symbol of the gross misuse of political power to persecute the church. And Thessalonians says there have been many Antichrists throughout the ages as the church has always faced persecution from its enemies, just as the seven churches of Revelation did. And that leads us to that dire prediction of verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. This is also the Spirit's word to the churches. The beast will wage war against the saints. And as far as the world can see, will overcome the saints by imprisoning them and killing them. We can see that there are more stories of persecution today than at any time in history. There are more Christians dying for the faith now than at any time in history. Persecution and martyrdom are part of God's plan for his church in this age. Because suffering is the church's inevitable path to glory. And the saints must demonstrate enduring faith. I'm not going to say a lot more about it because that's the subject of my message uh, this Maundy Thursday. So you have to come back to hear the rest. But then we get to this last section of 13 and the dragon summons another beast, this time from the earth. It's like the first beast, but instead of waging war against the saints through violence, it attacks the church by means of deception using signs and wonders to lead people astray. Starting at verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exposes all the, it exercises, excuse me, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of the people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. Who is this beast a counterfeit of? Holy Spirit. 
We have a counterfeit trinity here. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. You've been waiting for this part. <laughs> this beast is later called the false prophet. So it's a counterfeit of many images. Holy Spirit, we have counterfeit of the Trinity. We have the counterfeit of the church. And we also have the counterfeit of uh, a, a false prophet. This, this was sort of like a counterfeit John the Baptist, who was a prophet who proclaimed the coming of the kingdom with the coming of Christ. And this beast is out to deceive and delude the people of the world to receive the mark of the beast. The mark itself is a counterfeit. Remember, the people of God were sealed with the name of God. The saints were sealed by God so they would be protected for eternity. Well, here we have a counterfeit mark. We have counterfeit everything. And this beast is going to uh, delude the people to receive the mark of the beast and to destroy those that cannot mark. And as for the number 666, what is the number used throughout the book of Revelation as a sign of completeness, as a sign of perfection? Seven. Very good. The number seven, a symbol of completeness. The number six is not the number seven. It is incomplete. The dragon is incomplete. The beast from the sea is incomplete. The beast from the earth is incomplete. 666, a sign of being incomplete. As the teens would say today, major fail. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, if they were numbered, would be 777, completely complete. The false gods who wage war against the saints, 666, utterly incomplete. And again, this is another counterfeit sign, since the people of God have already been sealed by the Lord. And immediately after this discussion of the beast's mark, the sealed army of God appears in the company of their champion, Revelation 14.1. We're going to open with this uh, Easter Sunday. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The beast is waging war on the earth against the saints, and when everything looks at its worst, they're deceived, they're worshiping uh, false gods, the saints are being conquered, the saints are being killed, it looks like they lost, and there up on a hill is the king with his army. And we'll come back to that next Sunday because it's Easter. I've been saving that passage for Easter. Let me ask you, how many of you have seen the movie Patton? Okay, about half. The rest of you need to see it. 
It's a movie about the World War II hero, General George S. Patton. And there's a scene in the movie where it shows Patton in North Africa. And he's lying on a cot in his tent in the middle of the desert. And he's falling asleep reading a book. And he, and he sort of falls asleep and the book drops and he turns off the light. And the scene opens the next day. He's leading his troops in a major battle with infantry in the lead and armor in support. Actually, everything in the army supports the infantry. Everything, not that I'm biased. <laughs> but he's overcoming and defeating the desert fox, the German field marshal, Erwin Rommel. And as he realizes his army is winning the battle and Rommel's forces are retreating, Patton leans out of his tank, top of a hill where he's been watching the battle, and he yells across this vast desert at Rommel, I knew it. I knew what you would do. I read your book. The book was the military classic, Infantry Attacks by Field Marshal Erwin Rommel. And that was the book that Patton was reading on his cot the night before. And he was able to figure out what Rommel would do by reading his book, and thus he knew how to defeat him. True story. And at the center point of this book, the book of Revelation, John sees visions that disclose the core of the conflict that manifests itself in the struggles of the seven churches of Asia Minor that we saw back in Revelation 2 and 3. I mean, why do those churches face opposition from the synagogue of Satan? Why do those churches face pressure from the cult of the emperor where Satan's throne is? Why are those churches threatened by the seduction of the Nicolaitans? Why are those churches fighting the deception of the prophetess Jezebel? Why are those churches being afflicted by the lethal complacency of the Laodiceans? Why does the church today suffer persecution in China, India, Indonesia, North Korea, throughout the Muslim world? Why does the church today in Europe and America languish in spiritual boredom while surrounded by economic prosperity? And why are believers today seduced and deceived by false teachers who tell us to trust in our own wealth and in ourselves? Because we're engaged in spiritual warfare locked in mortal combat against a foe whose strength and cunning are intimidating, a dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And yet our foe has been defeated decisively by the one who came in weakness, the son of the woman, the lamb who was slain, whose blood overcame the dragon on behalf of all of those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. The war in heaven is won through an event on earth, through the birth of a child on earth. The war is won through the life of the child. The war is won through the preaching, teaching, healing ministry of the child. The war is won through the crucifixion of the child. The war is won through the resurrection of the child. And the war is won through the ascension of the child to the throne. We have a great general the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows every move the dragon makes and who will lead the host of heaven to defeat him once and for all. He is the victorious king who won the war on the cross of Calvary, defeating sin and death and the devil for always and forever. He is the word of God. 
and as we hold on to him, as we hold on to his book, then we can stand. As Ephesians 6 tells us, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Remember, the woman is a sign. She points beyond herself to another reality. She points to the reality of accepting the suffering of the saints. And the dragon is a sign who points beyond himself to another reality. He points to the reality of inflicting suffering upon the saints. Martin Luther once wrote these words, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That little word is the word. His name is Jesus. And you see, the child is not a sign. He does not point beyond himself to another reality. He is the reality. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. He's the King. And he's coming again. And he has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. And he will win the battle. Amen. Think about that. You need to pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Thank you for revealing Jesus to us as Lord and as Savior and as King. For those of us who need a new perspective on all those questions we can't answer this side of heaven. Trying to understand all those images we can't understand. Enable us to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And help us to focus our eyes on our champion, on our general, on our King, the Lord Jesus Christ who is coming again, and who will be victorious, and who promises to take us with him. Use these visions of revelation to change us into people who trust you no matter what. And we ask all this in the name of your son Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.